The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. As we return to our study of 1 Corinthians this morning, we are back in chapter 9. As we look at this chapter, on one level, it, it's going to create a little bit of an an awkwardness for us because as we'll see as we read this it's sort of like we're listening in on somebody else's argument an argument that we don't have a direct role in paul is is in conversation with the corinthian church about an accusation that they make against him that we really usually don't so in some sense it might seem odd Where this comes from is back in chapter 8, you'll recall he began to address their question about food offered to idols. Can we eat it or not? And he began, I say, because it's actually a several chapter long discussion. It reaches all the way into chapter 10. So it's the backdrop behind our our chapter this morning in chapter 9. He's discussing this and he, he begins his answer not by giving them a direct yes or no, but by attacking the issue that he really sees, their attitude. One of, a, one of a self-focus that says, I have some rights, I have some, some permission to do something here, and I'm going to do it no matter what it means for my weaker brother around me. That's the problem. So he's going to address that attitude and call them to give up their rights, to surrender them. And he knows what that's going to lead to in their minds. As he condemns proud, selfless, self-focused, loveless attitude, he knows they're going to accuse him of being too big for his britches. This has happened before. Who are you? I mean, I follow Apollos. I, I, I follow Peter, but not you. You're, you're a nobody. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. He knows it's going to come back from them. He knows that they're not going to recognize his authority. He's just some low-level teacher. He doesn't carry on like all the other, the elite in that society, all the various philosophers and teachers He doesn't live like them. He's just a blue-collar guy. He's a tent maker. What kind of authority does he have? They're going to come at him with that, and so he's going to respond with a defense. That's what this chapter is. And so in some ways, we're we're kind of listening in on on a dispute. We recognize him as something different than what many did in Corinth. But as we listen to this chapter, here's what this is going to begin to speak to us. As we listen to this chapter, what we're going to see here and, and I hope, I, I really hope, I, I pray that what this does is that this comes to you in maybe one of two ways. That it comes to you perhaps with a little bit of confrontation, but particularly with some, some lure, some encouragement to change. Because there's an offer here. Paul, what Paul's going to do as he explains himself, he's going to defend himself and explain what he's doing and why. And in that, there should be a lure to us. Ooh. I see that motive there. That's an attractive motive. There's something there for me too. And it'll draw you. Draw you to think and to act like Paul does. That's what a pray happens this morning. We look at chapter 9. It's a long chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter. But we're only going to deal with up through verse 18 this morning because it's just, there's a lot there. I read the whole chapter because it all fits together. And then focus on the first 18 verses. And may, maybe this confronts you a little bit, but may it also lure you and draw you. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? 
Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord in Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does He not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but not of my own will. I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 1 Corinthians chapter 9.
Chapter 8 ended, you'll recall, with Paul setting himself explicitly, setting himself as a model. Saying that he's talking about food offered to idols, and if it causes a weaker brother to stumble, then I will never eat. I'll never eat meat. I don't want that to happen at all. And knowing that what that will lead to in their minds, he moves to defend himself in chapter 9. And if you just look at the first half of that, or if you heard it as I was reading it, you notice there question after question after question, all rhetorical. Most of them you can answer with a very obvious one word, yes, no, surely. This is a a pattern. If, If you and I are talking, and I... Am I looking for information? I'm arguing something. I, I know, and I know that you know, the obvious answer here, and I'm pushing something. This, this is a confrontation here. In question after question after question after question, Paul's actually proving a point. He's making, as he says in verse 3, a defense. A defense of what? Well, of his apostleship and of its rights. He says, coming out of chapter 8, you're talking about freedom. Am I not free? I'm an apostle. And you know it. I'm an apostle. I have seen the Lord on the Damascus Road with my own eyes. And your very existence proves the point. I'm the one who came all the way from Jerusalem into this city, shared the gospel with you, led you to faith. Therefore, you exist. The only reason we're having this conversation is because I am a unique, special, designated apostle. Some other people don't know that, but you surely do. There's confrontation in this. But for those who don't know, here's my defense. And begins to offer up these questions, which are really statements. I know some doubt me, and the reason they doubt him, you know, some of this moves pretty quickly here to rights about, frankly, about compensation, money. One of the core issues here, why people doubted his apostleship, is that in that day and age, to be an elite, respected, sophisticated teacher carried some trappings with it, all of which Paul shunned. If you were, and I'm not speaking just of of a Christian, if you were a general respected teacher, if you had good ideas that were respectable, what happened is you came to town, you found yourself a patron, somebody who would financially support you, one of the people who believed your message, and the higher status person who believed you, the more that reinforced your message. That's kind of like today. We trot out celebrities as reason to believe something. Well, if you've got a, a wealthy person who, who believes you and financially supports you, that gives you some status. And it gives you some standing. And that means you can maybe use them on your billboard and fill up a lecture hall and you can charge them admission. And people did this and became rich. And Paul refused it. And he went out of the factory line, so to speak, making tents with his hands. It gets hard for proud people to follow a nobody. And that's what he was. Manual labor was looked down on, just like it is today in our country. I'm not saying it should be. I'm just saying that it is. If you actually are are an elite teacher, you look like one. You have a decent set of clothes. 
a nice place to live, and people who follow you and give you money. Paul didn't. He's an amateur. And so he's spending time here saying, but I have a right. All that financial stuff, I have a right to that. And he's really going after this, isn't he? Now, there's another side to it. We'll come to that. But you've got to hear him going after this. I have a right. I, I, I turn away from all that, not because I have no right to it, but for another reason, which I'll come to. Don't I have the right to this? Or is it only Barnabas and, my, and myself who don't have the right? Everybody else can be compensated, just, just us. And then he pulls out examples from nature. Come on now. Soldiers, vine dressers, shepherds, doesn't everybody live off of what they do for work? But not just examples from nature. Let's talk about the law of Moses, Deuteronomy to be specific. Didn't God also teach that even the oxen should live off of what they do? Don't muzzle the ox. And he's not really talking about the oxen, is he? It's about people. God's talking to people, not animals. He's trying to teach us something about himself and how he works. These are God's standards. And if, if an animal threshing grain is entitled to eat off of the grain, then that's supposed to teach humans threshing grain and humans planting crops that they should eat off of what they sow. And if I've sown spiritually, is it too much that I would reap materially? No, of course not. In verse 12, he begins to talk on the other side of the issue, but then comes back to it. 13 and following. It's not actually just the Bible model of oxen. It's how the whole temple is set up. What, how did the priests eat? Again, off of what was given. And what did Jesus himself command? Referring to what's recorded in Matthew and in Luke when he sent out the first missionary teams and said, don't take any food with you because the worker is worthy of his wages. Delta. Jesus himself established. You know, therefore, conclusion. Jesus himself established those who make their... Those who do the work of proclaiming the gospel should make their living off of the gospel. Again and again and again, through multiple examples, he proves that. Which is rather confrontational. And if you just read that, if I just stopped there, I would have a great sermon for twisting the screws on a congregation about money. It's there repeatedly, isn't it? But there's more. Starting in verse 12, and then he comes back to it again in verse 15. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. Verse 15. And never will. Not even right now in arguing this am I intending to make use of this right. I would rather die. And in the original language, it stops right there which most of our English translations, I believe, smooth out to make a legitimate sentence that, that captures the right point, but loses some of the punch to it. I'd rather die than in any way come off as manipulating you into, into depriving me of this thing that I'm trying to do. What's he trying to do? Gain a ground for boasting. I'd rather die than have any of you deprive me of my ground for boasting, he says. Which we need to be careful with. We've already talked a lot about boasting in this letter, and Paul is very keen on the evil that's in boasting. He's, he's very concerned about that. But here he means it in a positive sense. Think of it like this 
I want something that I can be proud of. Positively speaking. We, we can use that in, in English. We can use proud in, in the, both a negative and a positive sense. To be proud or, or to take pride in something well done. In, in a good way, you should take pride in it. It would encourage people to be proud of their work. Paul's saying, I want to do something that I'm proud of. Preaching the gospel is my job. Just straight up my job. He says in verse 16, it's a necessity laid upon me. It's a stewardship in verse 17. Like he's used that word earlier in the book. He was referring to is that when Christ called Paul, he assigned him a job. And he says, woe to me if I don't do that. That's, that's the woe of judgment. He's saying, I'm going to be under the judgment of God if I don't do this. So this isn't really anything to be proud of. I'm just doing my job, but I want to do more than that. I want to do something I can be proud of. I want to go above and beyond, beyond what's required, beyond the minimum. So, I preach laying aside my right to be compensated. That's my reward. In an interesting turn of words here, I preach without being compensated, which is my compensation. This is the part, as we, as we come to this in some minutes here, as we come to this, this is the part that I think should lure you. He's talking about compensation that is different from the other kinds of compensation. Which, which are fine, good, but there's another compensation that's got his mind and can be yours too. My compensation is to preach in such a way Verse 12, that removes obstacles from in front of the gospel and makes it as clear as I possibly can, as compelling as it can be. That's my reward, which I eagerly pursue and would rather die than have anybody deprive me of. That's as far as we're going this morning up through verse 18. Essentially, it's a personal defense. Paul explaining why it is that he says no to the financial compensation that they've offered them and that they think would be worthy of a a teacher of the status that he claims. Not because he's of a low status, not because he's not deserving of it, but for another reason. Something about the gospel and about his reward. So those two things are what we're going to look at here. Something about the gospel and... Something about reward. I'm going to make two observations along those lines. First one from the first half of the defense. It's personal for Paul, but but it is applicable beyond him. And I think we'll see this as we as we get into it. But here's here's my statement, my first observation. In the gospel, God does indeed provide rights for us to use and to enjoy. In the Gospel, that that means as a Christian, if you're a man or woman, boy or girl, as as a Christian, He's placed you in Christ. So under the Gospel, under the good news about what He has done at the cross in Jesus, 
there in that spot, He does indeed give to you a a whole truckload of right and privilege. And He means for you to enjoy them and use them. That's true. We build towards that from Paul's specific case. And we do need to start by noting the specifics. There's something specific he's about here. If nothing else, for noticing something about how God has structured the church. The rights that are immediately in view here are ones that God provides to ministers of the gospel. And I've written that with a capital M and capital G, ministers of the gospel. In one sense, we are all ministers, but there are unique, as he said in chapter 3, there are unique set-aside ministers in the church. What Paul's talking about is specifically focusing on those who proclaim the gospel and getting their living by the gospel. So over and over again, he proves this from the natural world, from the scriptures, from the teaching of Jesus. Those who sow spiritual things should reap material things from the field in which they sowed. So I just want to underline that a little bit and say this point's not very complicated. Most of us agree with it. And I say most of us because there have always been and still are some who are confused on this. Sometimes it comes from this very passage, seeing that Paul says no to this. Shouldn't everybody say no to this? No, he's got another reason that he says no to this. He's, he's really intent on establishing here, First Timothy, where he says some very similar things, that this is appropriate. Some misunderstand the doctrine of, of the priesthood of all believers and say that really everybody in the church is all alike. That's not true either. That's not what the priesthood of believers means. Clearly he has said in chapter 3, there are some set aside as builders of the building, as farmers in the field, and the field is the church. These are the ministers. So there is a difference, and it is entirely appropriate to compensate those ones who make their living and help them to make their living off of what they do. The ministry. That's what's directly in view here. But more generally, and it is appropriate to be more general here because Paul's very conscious that he's serving as a model for all of us. More generally here, in the gospel, he has provided rights for all of us to use and to enjoy. Not specifically spelled out in this chapter, but what's the larger context? Chapter 8 raised it for us. Food offered to idols, meat. He touches on a couple of things. Don't I have the right to take along a believing wife to eat or to drink? A couple of other rights hinted at. What he says, though, in the larger context here, he's talking specifically about food. And remember the point from chapter 8, verse 8. Whether you eat or not does not commend you to God. You are free from obligation to or not to. To eat this or don't eat that. You're no better off if you do or don't. There's there's a liberty that's been established there. It spreads beyond just food to to all kinds of things. There there used to be, and, and unfortunately for many of us, and I think... I think maybe a little more if, if you're a younger person. So if you're a younger person, listen to this, please. It is not true 
that becoming a Christian is like putting handcuffs on it and shackling you and limiting what you can and can't do, giving you a whole list of stuff. And now I have to do this and that and the other if I want to be right with God. That is not true. On the contrary, outside of the gospel, away from God, is where the limitations on life come in and all the other ways that people invent trying to become right with God. There, you know, there are all kinds of religions in the world. We were talking in life training class this morning and somebody mentioned Islam. You, you want a religion of shackles? Look there. And everywhere else. Everywhere else out there is how we human beings conceive of approaching God and becoming right with Him. And invariably it involves this rule and that rule and this do and that don't. It will crush you. It will, it will limit. Let alone the burden of sin. We were in fact born to a tremendous bondage. A slavery it calls it, the Bible does. A slavery to sin. We're, we, we are born into that bondage. And it limits us in countless ways. Particularly, it limits your ability to enjoy this creation because you are at odds with the one who is at the heart of it, God. If there is one who is the fullness of joy and he is your enemy, you are in bondage, limited, held away from hope and happiness. And we're born there until God in great mercy sent His Son to fix that problem and set us free from this hostility and open up the doors into joy. It should stun us. He has opened up a path where we can now come into His very presence Commune with the God who is Himself goodness. God does not contain goodness. He is goodness. And then He gives it out to other things. But He Himself is the center of it and has made it possible for us to be joined to Him, to commune with Him every day, only in the Gospel. There's a tremendous liberty there. I don't just mean liberty to do this and that and the other. Well, that's included too. But I mean, a liberty to, to live. To have your heart come alive. When before it was dead. Alienated from that who was life. So He joins you to Himself. He forgives you in the cross. And then it's, it's like an owner of a vast estate who makes friends with you and says, yeah, come use all the stuff whenever you want. If I'm not home, here's the code to the gate. I've got some, you know, some horses. I've got an 18-hole championship golf course. Woods to walk through. You know, whatever you want. Have at it. Not because I'm trying to turn your heart towards golf. But to illustrate something. If you're friends with the owner, the whole place is yours. You're you have free access to it. And all of this world 
made good, being remade good, filled, infused with the one who is good, is now made accessible to you and now can become, I know this gets a little complicated, but try to follow me on this, it now becomes a channel through which you can see the one who is good. Try to illustrate that. Actually, let me let C.S. Lewis illustrate that. He's brilliant on many things. Not everything, but brilliant on many things. And he describes what I'm trying to say in this way. He, he says, picture yourself in a shed on a sunny day. In a shed on a sunny day. Step into the shed and it's all dark in there. It's a little musty. You can picture all the tools sitting around. And in through a crack in the shed shines a beam of light. And you can see the beam. You can see the dust particles dancing in the beam. You can see the little spot on the shovel that it illumines and a little bit of dirt that clings to it. There's a root sticking out of the dirt. It's all right there. But all you can see is that and a little bit of sparkle here. Step into the beam and look back along it and you can see the sun. Glorious. That's how we are to use this small diffusion of God in this world. Not only to look at the little dot, but to step in and look back at the sun. In all of its splendor. Both ways. You stand in the beam and you can look both ways at the same time. Let me step back a little bit so you don't catch a shadow. You can... You can see both of those things. And to stand in the middle and connect the two of them is how you, you enjoy this world and this existence right here in light of God. That is what it means to live here in this world in the freedom that God gives you. Use every single little thing. Look at every single little bit of it in the light of the goodness of God who is in it and has given it to you. And no longer hangs over you a condemnation. But says to you, you stand in grace and in love. My child, it's yours. Use it. There is a tremendous freedom to live in this world and enjoy all of it. We have rights to it. He's given it to us as heirs. He's going to make it all new and it will be even better one day. And we'll move through every inch of it, enjoying it. It's a physical world where physical people were meant to enjoy it to the glory of God and for our good. Right here, we have a couple of those rights in view. Just the, the larger subject of food. Can you eat it? Sure. Now, he's going to talk later about, is there sin in that? And there are other... The things to consider, one of which we'll come to in a moment. But if you eat or don't, it doesn't commend you to God. You're free. Use it. Enjoy it. So please, Christians, and especially young people, I, mean, I think teenagers especially think about this and you think like, man, you know, to, to become a Christian is going to just ruin my life. It's going to put an end to it. Or to actually walk with Christ is going to be death. No, it isn't. It's going to be life. It really is blessing to you. He wants us 
He has, at the cross, He has won us a freedom to not look at this world and to not look at Him as enemy and as something to be performed in, but as something to be lived in and enjoyed to the glory of God and for our good. He wants us to live here rejoicing and enjoying as happy people in communion with Him. And all that being said, that's not the point. That's not the point. That's a point. He spends a dozen verses establishing the reality of right. And then says, eh, because I got something better. Paul's trying to explain why he doesn't take the right that's been given him. And what he's going to talk about here, I, I think, I hope, will attract you to not take all of the rights that you have, but to pursue your joy in maybe a little different way. So, for the second observation, comes from the second half of Paul's argument where he relinquishes the right to material support. We're going to see why he does that. So here's the point. There is great reward for us in laying down our lives for the gospel. There is great reward for us in laying down our lives. What I mean by that is not that you physically die, but to, to say laying down our lives, what I'm trying to capture there is a setting aside of my rights. I, I can live, I'm entitled to, it's permissible to, God will be okay with, but I'm not going to. Lay that aside. Lay it down. And if I do that for the gospel, there's great reward there for me. Starting in verse 12, of anybody, don't we, myself and Barnabas, don't we have a rightful claim on you? Absolutely, it's been proven. Nevertheless, we have not, in verse 15, not now and never will make use of this. We endure everything. This is in verse 12. Frankly, this laying aside of life hurt. When he says, we endure anything, you could flip back to chapter 4 and you could see what it is that he's alluding to. At the present hour, this is verse 11, we hunger and thirst, are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He kicked that off by saying, led out to die like those led into the, the gladiatorial arena. We endure everything hurt. And he could have avoided all of it by just taking the normal accepted compensation. But he didn't. Why not? Well, there are a couple reasons. They're related to each other. And we need to see both of them. And, and this perhaps, the first one is perhaps a little bit of a confrontation to you, and maybe the second one can be a little bit of an attraction to you. A couple reasons. First, right here in verse 12, why did he not make use of that right? So as not to put an obstacle in the way of the good news about Jesus. 
so as not to make it harder for the message about what God has done in Christ. That's the Gospel. Not what you are to do, but the message about what God has done in Christ. I don't want to make that harder to travel and, and strike someone clearly so that they comprehend it and are attracted to it. I want to remove anything that might block that. I don't want to risk clouding it, maybe in this case with a whiff of greed or of entitlement or communicating that you have to pay to get Jesus or to open myself up to being manipulated by those who hold the purse strings. I want to avoid all of that, whatever it is, We meet something extremely important, brothers and sisters, right here in verse 12. I ask you to think about something. Do you realize, yeah, you do, do you, though, realize that men and women and boys and girls will perish forever under the wrath of God if they do not fully trust this message? Really. It honestly will happen. It is already happening to millions of people who live forever. Now they will be one day raised again and judged, but they have already begun to experience it. Right as we sit here. And before I'm done, more will come to experience it. Do you realize that? It's true. I have to tell myself that it's true because I traffic in this material all the time and I forget it. It's true. But how in the world will they trust this Jesus unless someone preaches to them? And how will they hear it clearly from that one preaching if it is clouded in some way? Distorted. Twisted. Covered. Not not as compelling, as winsome, as loving as it could be. Not as clear, not as convicting, but confused, misleading, a mixed mixed message in some manner or another. I tell you, Christ is good. Christ is the fullness of all goodness. Anything that is beautiful in this world is from Him. And our problem, you say, our problem is that we have offended Him and and set Him aside and go about engaging in all this world as if it is life and we will ourselves make it... Well, I know, I do that. Don't do what I do. Do what I say. Yes, I I know. What I'm saying, what I'm saying is not, not exactly matching what I'm doing. Never mind that. You see the difficulty we get into? We start talking in circles pretty quickly. Yes, I know. I'm expressing to you with my mouth this gospel message. And I'm expressing to you with my life some other gospel message. It gets confusing. It makes one begin to wonder if you actually believe it yourself. Christ is life. But I need, fill in the blank, with, with whatever it is you spend your time chasing and get upset when you don't get. I, I know that there is an 
awesome, tremendous problem that I have before God that the solution has been granted by Christ. But I live as if all these other problems really are the ones that control me. And if I could only have these material things, this part, this political party's triumph, this health cure, this love from others, this respect I deserve, this orderly house, this good job, these obedient children, then I would be happy. Then I would walk in joy. Then I would say that God is good. That doesn't make any sense. Something's not right. You just have to ask yourself, are, do you walk through life erecting, passively or actively, erecting obstacles that maybe in a couple different ways block the gospel? Obstacles that dull your own personal earnestness. in expressing the gospel. Because really what you're you're wrapped up in pursuing because you think that's where your life is found. You're wrapped up in pursuing any of those other things that are perfectly fine and permissible and are meant to be enjoyed by you but have become central. And you're pursuing them and it dulls your awareness of the problems those around you face. The need to know Christ. So there's an obstacle to, to your spreading, or is there an obstacle that you erect that, that clouds or confuses the message, making it hard to see how what you say with your mouth, Christ is Lord and Christ is all. It seems less attractive because I don't really think you believe that. Is that obstacle in your life? It is of utmost importance that the gospel not be constrained or blocked by us. I I thought about this in my own yard this last week. My yard is is a minor construction zone and has been for a couple years. And that has led many of the neighbor kids to look at it as a playground. Because who doesn't love to come play in dirt? Especially if you're young. I, I personally have had this enough of that, but but they want and they, they come and they come and, and so I, I come out to to shoot some baskets in my driveway the other day and somebody had ridden again over this dirt mound and through a puddle and had bicycle mud tracks all over the basketball court and it's the. I think, I'm not totally sure, but I think that little one's related to a bigger one who has made a habit of driving his truck over my dirt berm before I put a great big rock there. (laughs) And I'm just kind of irritated about that. And I I, want to find that little kid and say, stay off my lawn. (laughs) Again, I'm, I'm irritated by that. And then I'm thinking... Obstacles. The thing that I want to say to that dad is, keep your truck off my property. 
And the thing I want to say to the kid is, keep your bike off my property. And then theoretically I want to say, but let me tell you about a, a gracious God who invites you. <laughs> See the problem there? <laughs> Not only is there an obstacle in my life about wanting to talk to him about the gospel, but there's some potential for some major dissonance in between the message that I'm saying with my life and the message I'm saying with my mouth. And it's just dirt. I'm not even talking about anything important yet. Are there obstacles in your life? Obstacles that are, that are blocks that would keep the gospel from going where it needs to as effectively as it needs to. This should be a very, very high priority in our thinking. And I would suggest that it often isn't. But there is more here. So why does he give why does he give up his right? Well, because it's one obstacle, but really there's something kind of more beyond that that should work on our minds differently. And again, I'm thinking about kids here. It would be good for you to ask your parents about this later and talk with them about it because this, what I'm about to say here, runs through all of this Christian faith that we're talking about. There's a motive here that runs through everything and it might help your parents to, to, to have you explain it to them. I'm saying that facetiously. It might help parents, though, as they, as they have to express it to kids. You kind of understand things. You express things to kids. It will be good to talk about this. Talk about it. But there's something here about motive that is, if you can get it, is powerful and it is central to how God works with us. The motive of lure, if you will, carrot rather than stick. Lure, offer. Twice he uses the word reward. Is not Paul intent on chasing a reward? He is. So, something here where he says, if I just do my job, that's good, appropriate, but I want something more. I want a reward. And what is my reward? It's to preach the gospel for free. Okay, so how is this a reward for him? Okay, well, let's think about this. use parents as an example. If, you, if you're a parent and you have some kids, it's not really anything to be proud of. Now, I know in another sense it is, it is honorable and it is noble to provide for your family. And in times when jobs are hard to come by, sometimes it's, it's difficult. I'm not talking like that. I'm not trying to use that side of this when I use this illustration. It's not really anything to be proud of to say, I bought my kid a pair of shoes this week and I fed him dinner every day. And I provided clean drinking water for him all week. Wow, nice job. Now, again, I know there's a sense that it is a noble thing, but the point I'm trying to make here is that the reason that nobody is going to give you a medal for that is that those are your kids. You're supposed to do that. 
if you don't do that consistently, a problem arises. That's quite different than if you save every penny you can and never eat out and wear your clothes till they are long out of fashion, forego decorating your house, drive an old beater car so as to save every single penny to provide food and clothing and shelter for kids in an orphanage that you'll never meet and you have no obligation to. There's a great big difference there, is there not? You will receive reward from one of those two, even if nobody on earth knows you did it. You'll receive reward in at least three ways that I can think of. First, there will be some in yourself, even as you write the check, some internal satisfaction of I am doing good I am loving these people who have this great need and I can meet it and I am setting aside things that I, I'm entitled. I'm entitled to go out to eat every now and then. I'm free for that. I'm going to set aside. And in my mind's eye, I see starving child that I feed and I feel good about that. that. There will be reward in that. Will there not? Yes, there will be. And many of us have experienced that. Secondly, on top of that, not just the internal satisfaction, but you will know... And in a significant way, God is real. And God will look on me and I am now communing with Him in this moment and He is responding to me saying, well done, good and faithful servant. In some way you share my values and you express them more than just talking about them. And there is a unique fellowship that comes in sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Paul wrote about that. I want to know Christ. Joy of His his resurrection and share in the fellowship of His sufferings because I know Him uniquely there. There will be reward for you as you uniquely meet and commune with Him walking this road of sacrifice for the sake of others And here's where perhaps a part of the analogy breaks down because I didn't make it an analogy that includes anything about the gospel, but here we are talking about the gospel. A sacrifice made so that some may know Him and may one day say thank you and will one day be with you, communing with you in the new heaven and new earth forever, sharing in the joy of this great God. That itself also will be reward. And even now as you know it, there is something awesome about seeing the gospel take hold of somebody's life and either convert them or radically renovate them. And you know this one is growing in their enjoyment of God with me. What a blessing. What a reward. You forego the pleasure that you are entitled to. In, in the analogy, you're entitled to a meal or clothes or whatever. It's okay. But you forgo them for the sake of something else. You're entitled in this life to a host of things. How you use your time and how you use your resources. There is not chapter and verse 
to tell you what to do at 205 today. I won't. I hope nobody else tries to tell you what to do at 205 today. But maybe for the joy set before you, maybe for the reward set before you, you might say, I could or I could set this aside for the sake of, in some way, pushing the gospel forward and speeding its spread clearly, compellingly, and winsomely for my joy, my reward. Now, as I know I'm engaged in something that's good, and I know that God is joined with me in this task, and even one day when the fruit is seen, there is a tremendous offer of reward here. And so I plead with you, do not pursue your reward only in the maximizing of your rights and overlooking the great gain can be found in speeding the spread of the Gospel. This compelled Paul. It grabbed him. He knew that Money is going to be a compromising problem in Corinth, so I'm going to suffer so as to see the gospel run. There is great reward for you as you lay down your life for the gospel. I'll stop there and let you pray. We'll move towards communion in a moment. But let me ask, ask you to pray and say. God, are there obstacles that I need to repent of and change? And will you use, will you raise in my mind the offer of reward as a motive? Maybe you're talking about that, maybe something else. Pray for a few moments and then I'll close that time of prayer and move us towards communion. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.